everybody welcome back to the smattering where we ask the hard questions about investing i am jason hall and i am joined by the voice of the people jeff santora jeff hey buddy hey hey how you doing i'm not great this is the worst my allergies have been in a very long time so i will apologize in advance to anyone out there who's wondering if i've started developing a cocaine habit i have not yet yet that's i'm right. trying to get to cocaine habit money but i'm not there yet so yeah let's not don't sell yourself short aim for the stars i think you can do it goals everybody needs goals all right so we'll, let's move on from future from future future drug habits jeff and let's talk about what we're going to talk about today on the show and i loved this idea this is something that you came up with and i think it's i think it's really apropos i think a lot of people are going through what you're dealing with yeah, I I feel lately like I don't know how to invest anymore. So we're going to this is going to be financial therapy for me and unfortunately I've chosen you as my therapist. So I'm not going to get very far. But I think you're right. I think the things I've been feeling lately are common for probably all investors, but especially those who are newer to it. Like I'm still in my first 3 years of buying individual stocks. So we're going to talk through that. Before we do, I have some shout-outs. I want to thank John Con 63, HJ Goodell, and Happy Jab, who all left us reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you are listening and you would be so kind as to do the same, we would really appreciate it because we're trying to get as many five-star reviews and reviews as we can um, so that the podcast gets put in front of new people. We can keep growing the audience. We've had a pretty good week. It seems like our pod from last week with John Rotanti was a big hit. So if you haven't heard that yet, go back and check that out. But anything our listeners can do to help us spread the word is super appreciated. If you And if you found us because of the conversation we had with John Rotanti and you're hanging around, thank you so much. Really think you'll enjoy what we're doing here. So again, I will echo, Jeff, I will echo your thoughts there and your gratitude there. So I don't know how to invest anymore. And we're going we're gonna to subtitle this one, F, jo F. Jim Gillies, right? <laughs> I wasn't going to call Jim out, but sure, no. if you want to go there. Yeah, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but no, we've, we talked to John Rotanti, right? Value investor. We spent a weekend surrounded by value investors at Berkshire's annual meeting. Jim, we've engaged with numerous times. We saw him in Buff at Berkshire. So take all of that, Jeff, and we've, we've had this conversation, and think about everything that's happened with the markets, with interest rates with stocks over the past year and a half. And it, I can only imagine it would be pretty, pretty easy to feel like whether it's, you don't know how to invest anymore, or maybe just nothing works anymore that used to work. I get it. That's what I'm struggling with. Cause I can't figure out if the reason I feel the way I do is because I'm actually just still learning and getting new perspectives from different people and hearing how other people approach things. And I'm actually legitimately refining my process. Or if I feel this way because it does feel like nothing works, even though if I take a step back and look at this year to date, things are better than they were last year. It just hasn't felt like it recently. Or is it all just a combination of those things? I think that's the thing I'm really struggling with. I don't consider myself to be a follow the herd kind of person. I think I'm a little bit of a contrarian by nature. I like to question things and try to think I'm a little bit of a skeptic. So 
I feel, and I know enough from learning from other investors, talking to you, doing this podcast, and also just being a stock market investor for 20 something years in, in index funds, that this is all part of the deal. The market doesn't always go up. So I haven't changed anything with my strategy. I haven't made any drastic shifts to how I invest. But I think what's rattled me is like, how do you know when the feeling that nothing works is because you're just learning and changing and thinking differently about it, or you're getting distracted by the noise, if that makes sense. And that's what I'm trying to, that's what I thought it'd be fun to talk through. Yeah. When you, when we, you and I were having this conversation when we were texting and for me, I think it was a culmination of frustration that I've seen from you broadly over the past four or five months. And I started thinking more about it. And the more I thought about it, what I'm seeing on Twitter, FinTwit, and what I'm seeing broadly, some of the content that, that I work on for The Motley Fool and the things in the headlines broadly, man, when did all these growth investors start looking for dividend stocks? And it got me thinking, this has to be something that there has an entire, maybe new cohort generation almost of investors that are dealing with Jeff. How many people do you know that you've interacted with when it comes to investing? Like they found the stock market and buying individual stocks sometime in 2020 when there were no more sporting events, all the bars were closed and all you could do is sit at home and play on the internet. Yeah. For me, that's when I found it, but it, it wasn't, I don't think replacing that for me, it was more like I had the time to learn about it and I found it interesting because my like initial thing was just reading a lot. I read a lot of books and articles and because I was like, what is a price to earnings ratio? I wanted to figure all that out. But in fairness for conversations we've had going back, you actually started looking at stocks before that, back in 2019, early 2020. But I think the point for me is thinking about it is from the period you started, we saw the market hit an all-time high in, at the time, February 2020. And then two weeks after that, we were in, we were all in lockdown and the market crashed fast. And then April was, the bottom was late March. And then April, the market was sideways, it was very volatile. And obviously, because a lot more people had started trading and had made the market very volatile and you can combine all of these retail investors coming in trading with an utter lack of certainty in any, with anything, nobody, the only thing we knew is that everything was closed and people were dying from this disease. We didn't know how much worse it was going to get. We didn't know when it was going to get better. We didn't know when anything was going to open up. And then the federal government rolls in and not just in the U S we saw the same thing in the European union, European countries did the same thing where massive public support was provided. Stimulus flowed in initially for people to be able to pay rent and buy groceries because we saw the largest surge in unemployment in the history of the measuring of unemployment. All of a sudden, all this artificial stimulation flowed into the stock market too. And we saw this massive, talked about it before, right? From that March bottom, we saw the market recover in less than nine months. I think it was from bottom to top, for, from, the pre, from that February peak to full recovery was well under a year. It's like nine months or something like that. It was just an incredible fast recovery. And then we get to the end of 2021. And that was the first week of 2022, the indices peaked. And we're still well below that a year and a half later, almost. So basically it's like 
for a lot of people, you can cut your investing journey into two parts right now. And the first one is this completely abnormal period of start market returns. And then you've seen this very protracted period of poor, poor performance. That's still, again, from the previous peak, we're still well below that. And so what's real? It's hard to know what's real, right? And for someone like me who is a net buyer of stocks, right? I don't accumulate cash. I try to buy every week in small amounts compared to my portfolio. Like I'm still not at the point where I'm like, I'm going to put 4% on my portfolio this week into this one stock. I don't think right. I'll ever be that person. And you but don't I think build that, up that cash position that you could use to deploy in that kind of way too. Right. Because I'm still, I don't want to be wrong. Like I don't want to be massively wrong. That's but I think that's a pretty conservative kind of safe way to think about investing. And, but I think what, what's tough for me is like, and I think a lot of people are probably in this boat. You probably have some things in your portfolio that are up you're doing well and then the green. And then if you've bought anything the last during 2020 and 2021, especially if it was like a growth stock, there's a good chance it's down in your portfolio even still. And I think how to handle those things is what's hard because part of me, it says, if I really believe in the business and I'm following it and learning about it and I understand it, buying it over the next year or two or three at different prices, if it ends up being like a massive win or two decades from now, I'm in good shape. Like those early cost bases will get shaken out in the wash, so to speak. But then the flip side of that is what if I'm wrong? What if that style of investing is really gone for the next like really long time? And this is Cisco circa two, 2000, where it doesn't re ever recover or Microsoft went 15 years before it saw its all time highs. And of course, like you said, in the investing zeitgeist, all you hear now is value investors, right? Whereas 2020, 2021, it was rocket ships to the moon. And now it's dividends and return on invested capital. And I don't think I can ever be the person who does one of those two things exclusively. Yeah. You referenced John Rotanti and Jim Gillies, guests we've had on the pod and people we've spoken to, and they know who they are as investors and they're consistent in that. And I'm still trying to figure out where I fit into that puzzle. And again, it's that whole thing. Am I just learning? And this is the normal, like learning struggle, or am I being pulled by the noise? That's the hard part to figure out. Yeah. I think one of the challenges too, and this is something that, man, it took me a long time to really f fully internalize this is that when you play, and again, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think it's one that a lot of people can relate to. We can use sports, for example, but you can apply the same thing to baking. Baking, as far as that goes, when you put in the reps, you put in the physical time to get better at it. You're out there on the driving range. You're on the. You play as many rounds as you can. You join a basketball league to get better, right? And you take a hundred free throws a day, right? And you learn like the proper form and repetition, right? And you develop those skills. And again, you can apply it to cooking or any other physical chess, any, anything like that, right? You immediately see the results of your work. Like you immediately get either positive or negative feedback because of the outcome of your actions either results in a better outcome or not a better outcome, right? With When you're investing in stocks, the market will lie to you, <laughs> right? It will reward you for a bad buy. It will punish you for a great buy in the short term. 
and you don't really get accurate feedback. And even then your accurate feedback on a single buy or sale is it's still, there's going to be a certain amount of fortune or misfortune that plays into it. But realistically, it's multiple years before you really know. And that's, and that's the thing. Like there's a world in which me, investor me from 2021 was right. And there's a world where investor me right now is right. And there's a world where investor me from 2025 is right. But I won't really know the answer to that question until I'm going to retire. Yeah. So that's what's frustrating. And I, so I, again, I want to step back. If I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit, I will say I've not thrown anything. I have not started over. I've not sold my whole portfolio, even though I threatened to do it at least twice a week to you on text. I'm cognizant Sometimes enough. twice a day. Yeah, I, it's true. I'm cognizant enough that I don't know how to process the way this all feels to like not make any rash decisions. And if not, I'm not in a place to give advice, but I think that's probably, the, I feel like that's one thing I do know is I think that's the right way to go about it. So I guess my, a question I would have for you, since you've been doing this longer than I have, do you remember the last time like you made a significant change to like your framework or how you think about investing or your strategy or that you have now stuck with for a long time and feel like that was the right move? So I, I think as a starting point, like the most distinct time I remember going through, like the emotional things that you're going through right now, was probably 2011, 20, 2010, 2011. I'd have to go into Google News and pull up the headlines, but it was the, we pulled out of the financial crisis, right? The economy was moving forward, but Europe was still a disaster. Do you remember the pigs? Portugal, Ireland, Italy, who is the G? Greece and Spain, right? Like the expectation was that the European Union was going to fall apart because these companies were, these countries were heavily indebted, massive amounts of unemployment, but they had things built into like their social structure that made it very difficult to like to pull through and to move forward. And there was real concern that the entire world was going to go back into another recession and that it was going to drag the U.S. economy back down with it. Fast forward a few years and it, everything was fine. But I can tell you, I went through this entire, that entire period of time. And this was, I was still working a full-time job. I was more or less in your shoes because it was really probably three years before that, four years before that, 2007, 2008, when I really began like actively, consistently buying stocks my own. I had joined a couple of the Motley Fool services. So 2010, 2011, I was still outsourcing a lot of my stock picks to the Motley Fool. Finally starting to figure out how to do valuation and think broadly about what was I trying to build. But that was a tough year. It was a tough year. Nothing worked. Like nothing worked. Like everything that I bought lost value. I think maybe one out of the 10 or 15 stocks that I bought in the first half of the year finished the year in positive territory. It was tough, right? The upside of that was I didn't, there wasn't like a built-in mini dot-com cloud stocks, SaaS stocks crash, right? That was going on. So I was still riding high from like the stuff I bought in 2009, you know, when we were well down from the 2007 high. You got to remember the Dow had fallen 57%. The S&P was down more than half from that high. And it was like a year and a half fall. So I'd still made some really good buys like the year before that were good, 
but it was making me question everything about my process. And again, there were all these worries about the economy. Does that sound familiar? There were worries about inflation and about interest rates starting to like all of those things were worries that everything was going to blow up. And the best thing that I did, the most important thing that I did was exactly what you've talked about. I went through the, the all of that, the mental turmoil of I'm going to blow this up. I'm going to sell everything. I'm going to start over. And I didn't do it. I didn't react. I didn't let emotion take the wheel, right? I stepped back and I tried to think objectively about what I was trying to accomplish. And then I started to dissect every action that I took, every trade that I made, every time I sold and started to try and think more a business owner, right? And, and I'm selecting these businesses that I want to own. They're going to help me be more wealthy in 20 years, that sort of thing. And what I found was it's around the edges of your portfolio generally. That that's where you can optimize. Like I, I figured out, it took me a long time to figure out. I'm the guy that's probably going to own around 100 stocks. <laughs> that's who I am. At different times, I've gone through this arbitrary process and been like, I need to have 40 stocks. That makes sense. And I would steadily sell off and sell off and bring it down, and then. Guess what? I'd fall in love with a bunch of other stocks and I'm back up to 60 stocks. And it's like, why am I fighting against this way that I'm obviously wired, right? And like figuring out how to, I've talked about this before a ton too. And I will talk about this every podcast episode that we do until you fire me and replace me with somebody much better. Managing as an investor, you will spend more time managing yourself than you do actually managing your portfolio. Yeah. I think what it's funny, you talk about, it took you a while to figure out you're the guy who owns a hundred stocks. I think this is the other thing that's a struggle for me personally is forgetting all of the recent emotional turmoil about what to do with my investing framework is the thing that, and I've said this on the podcast since we started, like I'm trying to be the guy who has less stocks than I currently do. And it's because my stocks in my individual stocks are still a small part of my wife and I's combined portfolio of investments. Right. You've spent 20 years, your wife spent 20 years doing your 401k and getting all that. And it's going into those funds and that's still there and still doing the same thing. Right. So that's, this is where it's a struggle for me because there's still this desire to just pull the weeds, so to speak, because I'd like to have less stocks because of everything I already said, but because everything is like not working now, I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I should just wait and be patient. Meanwhile, I probably still have some garbage in my portfolio. I should have never bought. I bought it based on other people's, the hype or whatever, like back in 2020, 2021, when I was still naive and learning and I had a little bit of FOMO and, you know, that, and I want to make the right decision now. So it's just, I think when I, when I step back and think about it, I am being patient. I'm waiting. I also think, and I want to get your thoughts on this too. I think the next the rest of this year is going to be really interesting to watch in terms of business results. We're near the end of the earnings season for Q1, and it feels like a lot of the things I was watching trend-wise were either continuing for some companies or reversing for others or holding steady. And I don't know, like I'm wondering how much further into this year we can go before we start seeing really cl much clearer answers from some of these businesses that I have in my portfolio that I'm still like wondering about. So that's why I'm telling myself like you can wait another quarter or two 
you know, but it doesn't make it any easier. So I figured we would talk through it. So it's, it's one of those things where I want to try to unpack a little bit of what you were just saying and how I hear it and the way I think about it. So number one, talking about having those kind of disasters in your portfolio, those stocks that you never should have bought, you never had conviction in. They have gone terribly and they're unlikely to improve. To a certain extent, that's always going to be the case. Unless you're one of those hyper-disciplined value investors that have that Buffett-like focus of buying within a certain valuation range and you're buying very established, profitable companies and building in that margin of safety, you're going to have more disasters. It's just That's just the nature of the way it works. And so I think a big part of it for me is like just accepting that's a feature not, it's not about Buffett lost well, billions on IBM. Let me so, pause on that. But let me pause on that for a second. I think what I struggle with is I get that. Like I, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that I'm going to bat 700. I think what I'm struggling with is on a long enough timeline, I'm going to say something that may sound stupid on a long enough timeline. I truly do believe that most of the things in my portfolio right now that I think are not great will break even or turn green because I could hold them for 20 years. But what's the opportunity cost? That's the struggle, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and they're not huge position. That's again, it's, that's not like I've dumped 30 grand into zoom and now it's down 70%. So it's part of me is what's the harm in letting this literally in some cases, a couple hundred dollars sit here just, and maybe a year or two or three or five from now, I can at least not take the loss. So it's, it's little dumb things like that, but. But I get that you're, I actually would be more comfortable with a company that I bought where I just knew right now, like that was just, I was wrong. Like I thought it was going to be X and it was Y and that's a clean, like I sold Fulgent for that reason, just as, just to give a concrete example. I still think that company could have done well in my portfolio, but I just had a, such a clear understanding for why I owned it originally. And then that changed and I, there were some other red flags and then I was out. That made sense to me. It's the other ones where it was, I just bought the wrong price and, or it's going to take a really long time for this to play out, or maybe this was never a standalone company on its own. And it'll, I, maybe I think it's going to be acquired. So anyway, I just wanted to pause on that. What do you do? What do you do next? I don't know. Yeah. That's the hard thing. I, so I think for me, it's, it's the two things. It's what do you do with the things you already own? And do you add to them at lower prices because you still believe in them or do you just ignore them? And then it's also like, where do you put your new money? I've been very, I don't, I've only added two new companies to my portfolio, I think in the last like year and a half. So I've been, I've become very picky in terms of new things in my portfolio. So then it's a matter of like, of the 60 something stocks I own, who gets my capital. And I do still have a decent amount of companies I own that I do feel good about, even the ones that are down. So I think that's where I am right now is just keep my process in terms of that, put the money towards the companies that I currently do have the high conviction in. And that buys me time to figure out what to do with the ones I had medium or low conviction in. So a, cu a couple more thoughts here, I think are useful. Number one, every investor, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that we probably have a lot of listeners that are 
going through something similar or have gone through something similar and like they've started to like come through it. So maybe refining your process because a lot of this I think is not just the environment of the market, but that's obviously that's going to be a part of it because it's a lot easier to lie to yourself of what kind of an investor you are. If it's just a raging bull market and you're making tons of money, you don't have to change anything because it's working. But in these kind of periods, I think it's interesting because it's a reminder that even the best investors have gone through this. You look at some of the big names that are running billions of dollars in hedge funds that have made billions for themselves. Like every year, there's one of those big funds that blows up and loses billions of dollars. And often they do it in the middle of a perfectly good year. It's because they tried something, they over leveraged, they didn't hedge the right way and it blew up. It's just, it always happens. Even the best investors do it. I mentioned IBM with Buffett, right? It's the best investors screw up. It's the nature of it, right? But it's getting the in aggregate results that matter, that I think that matters the most. One thing I really want to talk about a lot, Jeff, that I think is maybe the most important part of this conversation, particularly for newer investors, is I think we're in an environment right now that you're not the only one that hasn't dealt with. I think you have to go back 15 years. You've got to go back to before the financial crisis to get to an environment where stocks were no longer or weren't the only game in town. I don't think a lot of people comprehend how much a 5% yield on a 30-day treasury, that's 5% annualized yield, to be clear. It's not 5% for 30 days, but like how much that changes the game in terms of where billions of dollars of money are potentially going to go. Because as much as retail investors matter, and as much as our money that we invest in control matters. Our 401ks matter a lot more, right? Because that's just a large pool of money. But the reality is that pension pension funds, sovereign wealth, the family offices of the Bezoses of the world, endowments at universities, like all of these, and it's particularly things like endowments and pension funds and that sort of thing, Jeff, like they have outflows that they have to fund. You know, they have with teacher pensions, they have to pay firefighter pensions that they have to pay. And what that means is that they have certain thresholds for return. And as long as they're meeting those thresholds, they are going to take the absolute lowest risk asset that they can. Yeah. And yeah. as a result, there's billions of dollars that has been more risked on simply to try to capture higher return in stock market gains over the past 15 years that doesn't even have to look at stocks. And what that means is that when you have less competition, there's less money that's going to flow into stocks, then that means multiples are going to come down. And I think we're still really early in like that shift because I think there's still some money out there that and here's part of the story. There's a reason you can get a higher yield on an 11-month CD or a six-month CD from your bank than you can on a three-year CD or a five-year CD. It's because your bank is pretty sure interest rates are going to start to come back down. And that's exactly feeds into the conundrum like I'm feeling and I'm sure a lot of people are feeling right now. So 
do you hang tight with what you've been doing and just ride this higher interest rate environment out, so to speak? We may never get, not never, we might not get back to zero for a long time. But about a hundred years from now, when there's another once in a century event. Right. But do you do what the banks are doing and price your own thinking for longer term periods of time that the interest rates will come back down at least a little bit? Maybe they get down to two, 3% and just hang, hang tight? Or do you always adjust what you're doing to meet the moment? I think that just plays into how this is, this is tough. Yeah. Yeah. And I brought all that up to say this, and that is this environment is different. Even if we see rates start to come down, first of all, if they come down really fast, it's bad because we've gone into the crash has happened. The crash landings happen, not the soft landing. And the Fed has to react quickly to try to stimulate economic activity, right? So that's not good for earners, the risk of losing a job, right? Those of us with spare cash, it's good because you can buy cheaper. But it's also the court of environment that could see like the next leg down on those, you know, that, that cohort of stocks that maybe they're still trading for really high valuations, even though they're down 60, 70%. And you're holding on to them and I don't know what's going to happen. I still think it's a pretty good business, but the valuation is still concerning. But haven't convinced yourself to sell. Maybe they could lose another half from here and before they get down to even quote unquote normal valuations. So I think that's like part of the conversation a lot of people are having in their heads. It's like, maybe something that's going to happen. Rates are going to come back down. And something's going to cause like valuations to get pushed back up for stocks again to like just to above average levels. And the problem with that is for rates to come down, we have to see economic activity get smashed. We have to go into recession because if the economy stays healthy, rates might get lowered a little bit, but there's just no incentive for the Fed to lower rates if the economy stays healthy. There's no reason to. It doesn't make sense to lower rates unless there is an economic reason, a major reason to do it. But all of that to say this is the last thing, Jeff. That 5% yield is great and awesome for your dry powder, but it's still half the returns that the stock market has gotten. And if we do see a protracted period where the market is down and maybe trades for a lower multiple, for those of us our age or younger, even 10, 15 years older, who are still net contributors, that just means this is a really good time to be thinking about buying. If we do see the market go into that, right? It's like, what the fuck are you trying to do? If you're trying to grow your wealth over the long term, buy stocks, own stocks. And that's what, that's the frustrating thing for me. I know enough that I'll take this bear market for as long as we can have it based on where I am in my like life in terms of investing. Now, I know if right. you're listening to this and you're about to retire, you're probably screaming at your podcast app. That's the way I look at it. And we were just at the Berkshire meeting two weekends ago. Like they said, they, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger have said the same thing over and over again. If you're a long-term holder of great businesses, like you want them to you want stocks to be down so you can buy them at better prices, right? You can get the company you want. Especially the if they're paying dividends it. and they're doing stock buybacks because that means right. they're steadily giving you more and more of the business and they're doing a better job of buying those back when they're discounted. And that's, I think, the pressure, so to speak, right? Is this is the, I think, it might've been Jim who said this to you once, this is what we train for. 
right? This yeah. is yeah. this is the time you you make hay, so to speak. And I don't want to miss that opportunity, which is again why I'm like, am I doing the right thing? Am I thinking of this correctly, or do I need to tweak and change? I want to share one more thing here that I think is really compelling. I shared this with you when we first had this conversation, and it ties in exactly what we're talking about. But I just I think Ben Carlson from Ritholtz Wealth Management has a blog. It's a wealth of common sense.com. Just all one word, a wealth of common sense. And he wrote a post, um, was published, I think this Monday, May 14th, called Roughly Right or Precisely Wrong. And I encourage people to go out there and read it and sign up. They say he sends out emails every time he drops something new. And it's really good stuff. But he's just really good at almost like Morgan Housel-ish in terms of taking things that can be com complex and just making them more down to earth and easy to understand. And the big thing that I think this is really important about, and as investors, we have to remember is that it's not binary. The outcomes are very rarely binary. You were talking about those like more confounding ones. That's It's not clear. It's like you were talking about with Fulgent Genetics. It's like that one to you was one that based on your thesis and the outcome and the direction of the business to you, it was binary that this was a bad investment by me. It's not going to get better. I'm moving away. I'm moving on. If you bought Apple anytime over the past 25 years and have held it for a long period of time, binary, this was a good binary outcome that it was obvious a smart decision, right? It's been a huge winner. But we're almost never precisely. And it's the idea is thinking about these things in general generalities, right? And thinking about them from a perspective of a range of outcomes is far more useful. And you'll be a better investor if you invest thinking about a range of potential outcomes and not the stock either doing great or doing terrible, and then it's going to be easy for you to decide to buy more or just to sell and move on. There's a ton of stocks you're going to buy that are just, they're going to suck, right? They're just going to probably suck a little more than the market does. And it's going to be confounding because they're never going to outperform and you're going to throw more money at them because you're convinced they're cheap and they're going to win and they're always going to be underperformers, right? And that's, read, just read the post. I think it's really helpful in kind of thinking about things more from that perspective. Yeah. I think the final thing I'll say just to wrap up the conversation is this is something that I reminded myself of recently, reminded myself of recently that made me feel a little bit better about like how I'm thinking about this whole thing. And that is I spend a lot of time thinking about individual stocks and investing because I love it. But so much of my portfolio is actually in index funds and that I don't even pay attention to, right? Because it's just out of my paycheck and boom. And when I take a step back and look at it from that perspective, I'm okay. Everything's going fine. I'm the portfolio is growing over time. Like I, I think I'm on track for, so I think if I were to, I know we don't give answers to our questions, but one thing that's given me some solace is knowing that again, it's like the goals versus incentives thing. Part of me feels like I'm getting caught up in my incentives and forgetting my goals when I have these like conflicting thoughts about if my investing process is wrong, I'm still on track for my goal. And I have to remind myself of that and not get too caught up in the incentive piece of it. So that's where I landed as I thought through it this week, but I'm glad we talked through it. I think it was, I hope it was helpful for people because again, sometimes just having the chance to say the things out loud can give you clarity. Okay. We're going to take a little break here and we'll see you back after the break. We got a little something more coming. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you had a nice little break there and a nice coffee. Maybe a latte. Maybe an iced Americana. I take no greater joy in editing out your cheesy coffee break jokes. I know you do. That's why I always make sure to leave one in there for you. Hey, Jeff. Yeah, buddy. I did a thing. You did a thing. This is my favorite. This is my favorite construct for the second part of our show is Jason did a thing and we're going to talk about it. And I like it because it's time stamped and we can always go back in a year or two or three and see if Jason was a genius or an idiot or somewhere in between. So Jason, what is the thing that you did? So based on that statement, this is, we will call this B block. Jason did a thing or is Jason an idiot? I like it. Yeah. So I didn't just do anything. I did a lot of things. Jeff, I did a lot of things. So let me, so as we all know, as we all know, on March 10th, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were taken over by the FDIC. Back in January, I made a very terrible call about Silicon Valley Bank. I completely miscalculated the level of risk of these mortgage-backed securities, these low-yield 30-year mortgages from 2020 to 2021. On banks, boom, it blew up. We saw First Republic here not too long ago get taken over by the FDIC. Honestly, a little bit from a similar situation. So what did I do? I went out and immediately invested another 10% of my entire portfolio value, Jeff Santoro, in bank stocks. Now, in case this works out poorly for you, I just want to point out, I did ask you to think through this. And no, like most things, you ignored me, but... Yeah, no, I listened to you and then just chose to disregard your advice. But you did text me and I said, hey, Jeff, I'm thinking about loading up on bank stocks. And Jeff texted me back and said, don't do it. Let's talk. I felt like someone needed to at least get you to think through what you were doing. All kidding aside, I mean, I would never try to actually get you to not do what you wanted to do, mostly because I'm an idiot. But you spend a lot of time writing and thinking and learning about bank stocks. If I did the thing you did, it would be dumb because I would be basing it on a small amount of information and you're actually informed. But I just wanted to hear on the pod in case it it blows up in your face and I can say I told you. Of course. but And I think it's important too. So my actions on banks, I, I added to my portfolio one, two, three, four, four banks that I did not previously own. Now, Bank of America, I have owned in the past, but sold. Actually, it was pretty good. I sold Bank of America pretty big, good bit higher than its current price. But here's the thing. Besides Bank of America, the other banks that I bought, these are mid-sized regional banks for the most part. Truist Financial, PNC, 
M&T Bank. I added more to Live Oak Bank. We've talked about that before. And I, I want to talk briefly about the reasons that I decided to do that. And then I want to talk about the other thing that I did too, that um, again, and part of the reason I want to talk about it is a little bit of that public accountability that you're talking about there. But I think here's where I've come down on this with banking is, and there might be some listeners out there rolling their eyes because banks have come up a lot going back to when we had John Maxfield on the show in February and then everything that's happened with the banking world since then. But I just think we're in one of those moments, Jeff, where the market has created an opportunity. And there, I know a lot of really smart investors and some analysts, their job, like their actual job, they get paid to be analysts, right? To help pick stocks. And I've had several analysts out there. Now, these aren't people that are analysts specifically in banking. A lot of them are in other areas, but, the, but they're, they've all generally said, yeah, I'm not touching mid-sized banks. I'm not touching mid-sized banks. So of course, I, I bought a bunch of mid-sized banks. But my reasoning is because when fear is at its highest and there's the most uncertainty and people generally think it's just going to get worse from here, that's generally when things are just going to be fine. Okay, but let me ask this question. Yep. What could go drastically wrong? I think a couple things. So this is the first one. So I went back in all of these banks and I didn't just pick the ones that had fallen the most or the ones that like their price to book or PE ratio or whatever had fallen the most. With that said, Truist Financial is trading for 62% of book value. A good value for that bank is probably 1.1, 1.2 times book value. That's probably the high end of like fair value. But I spent hours and hours, like last week alone, I know I spent at least six hours going through bank balance sheets and looking at those, how much of their loan portfolios or securities that they own that were mortgage-backed securities, like a bunch of mortgages all bundled together, right, in one big package, were yielding like those low-yield 2020, 2021 mortgages and refinances that were yielding like less than 3%. Like how many of them, like... I would not buy a bank that, that that was like a big part of their loan book, like an outsized portion of their loan book. The ones that I bought, they had some, every bank has them. They, that's what banks do, right? But they also have really good commercial loan portfolios that are adjustable rate that are going up to help offset that. Is, so they're benefiting from rising rates and they're not in a position where this is like going to create an existential risk for these banks. Now, with that said, there's always the risk of a bank run. We've learned that, right? But I think these are the banks that generally, if they're not necessarily completely like run proof, but we've seen Truist, PNC, Bank of America, certainly, they've benefited from the bank runs. This isn't 1987 where people go into a bank and they leave with cash in a bank run and then they stick it in their mattress. They go onto another bank and they log on and they make an account and then they transfer their money from one bank to another. That's what a bank run is now, right? So. There's somebody benefits from these. And these are all banks that I think are pretty positioned to benefit from it. I, I specifically made sure to avoid as much of that risk as I can. But here's what I do think is a reality. I think if we look at the banking world and we look at that so many mortgages were refinanced and so many home sales were written at these ultra low rates, I think it's likely we could be in a, in a period, certainly for the next five years, maybe for the next 10 years, where a very, again, talking about that, we talked about in the first half of the show, like thinking about range of outcomes. 
I think there's a reasonably high probability that we see a lot of these banks, they don't deliver the kinds of returns on capital that we've seen them deliver over the past five or 10 years because their costs of capital are all moving up and they're all going to be somewhat encumbered by a big chunk of mortgages that are yielding 2.8, 2 2.9% or less. And the math is just not, it's not going to be favorable for them. So I think that's just a little bit of a reality. And I'm willing to take the risk that the price that I paid is going to more than make up for potentially lower returns. And we don't see the, like the premiums for book value or price to earnings ratios, even if they normalize back to those previous PE ratios, if the earnings are not as high, the stock's going to be valued less. So I tried to build as much of that into my model as I could. And my model, what I thought in my head was going to be okay because I didn't actually make a, make a model. If you actually made a model, I'd be disappointed. So unlike when you bought First Republic initially as a trade and then kept it as a long position and got screwed. I fell in love with it. Yeah. Yeah. Are you, so you, it sounds like you're viewing these purchases as long-term hold them. This is not something you're looking to pull, turn a profit and get out. Am I understanding that correctly? Like you're, yeah, I'd be, as, I'd be super pleased if I was selling Truist in three years because I thought it had exceeded its fair value and I was making a good a double my money. I'm not expecting that. I didn't buy any of these without intending to hold them for five plus years. These are all very high quality businesses. They have really long track records of success. P and, and M&T, and this is, this is awesome and also awesomely scary, hasn't lost money in a quarter in 40 years. That's, so they're due. So, <laughs> exactly. So they're going to go out of business before the end of the year. No, but it's, seriously, it's like, it's again, these are really high quality businesses. So I started from that and thought, is this a business that I can see myself holding for five years? And if it's not, I'm not going to, I didn't buy anything. I wouldn't be comfortable holding. So started there. All right. So you mentioned you did another thing. What was that? So you remember, I've shared it here on the show, this article that I wrote in 2020 about the oil stop sub, oil stock subsector that turned $10,000 into $98. You remember, remember that? Yeah. I just bought a bunch of those. That's the offshore oil and gas drilling contractors subsector. Episode 53 of this smattering, smattering podcast is going to be epic when we, when we look back. <laughs> so it'll be technically, I guess it would be 53 plus 52. That'd be episode 105. What, like a year from now? Mistakes we'll were made. <laughs> <laughs> So I did, and and I think there's a little bit of thinking about the like the reasons that I did the thing that I did with banking, and I think this is one of the most important th lessons you can learn as an investor, is don't take mistakes as opportunities to learn and not make the mistake of avoiding the same pain cause you to miss opportunities. I obviously made a mistake with Silicon Valley Bank, with SVB Financial, right, underestimating the risk. I made a mistake with First Republic of falling in love with a trade and not just taking the money and moving on. But the overarching lesson about banking is obviously it's a cyclical business. There's leverage risk. But when things seem the worst, obviously that's often that's the time to buy. So that was the thing there. Thinking about the oil and gas industry, I've covered it for longer. I've studied it for longer than I've studied banks. And the reality is that we saw the offshore oil drilling sector 
go through four and four or five years of brutal cuts. The big oil driller or the big oil companies were not developing offshore resources. They were spending all their money onshore on shale, chasing that quick turn oil. As a result, the industry had terrible timing with trying to bring all these new vessels online and all the companies took on a bunch of debt. And they all went bankrupt except for Transocean and maybe one or two other small players. And some private ones didn't, but basically the entire pub public sector, except for Transocean, went bankrupt. As a result, we've seen these companies reemerge. And one that I bought, it's a company called Valaris, has net cash. They actually have more cash than debt by a pretty sizable amount. And these companies are in really good position. And we saw something happen this week. We saw day rates, which is not going to mean a lot, of, a lot to a lot of people, but on some of these high-spec floating drilling vessels, we saw a deal this week where they surpassed $500,000 a day. We haven't seen that since 2014, 2015. It's, it's, we're talking eight years since we saw rates that high. There's a ton less vessels out there operating, and the demand has come back to it. And I think these businesses are just in a really good position where the tailwinds are finally favorable again. The businesses are stronger. Their economics are better. So I can lose money on them for four or five years before they go bankrupt, I guess. So do you think you're done buying stuff for a while? Because you tend to be more of a, you tend to invest in bursts, it feels like. Whereas I'm like steady every week. You're like, I did a bunch of stuff and then I did nothing for six months. Like, how are you feeling about the next couple of weeks in terms of buying? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, there's the only thing that's really catching my fancy right now that I'm like having to stop myself from buying is Airbnb. I'm just, I'm continuing, I'm struggling a little bit with valuation and Tyler Crow and I did a video like focusing on what is management going to do with that extra money. And they started talking about adjacent opportunities, which is, that's just, Oh great! What are they gonna What are they gonna buy? How are they gonna screw this up? What are they, yeah. How are they yeah. gonna turn this very profitable business into a moderately profitable business? What are they gonna What are they gonna do? And that has me a little bit concerned. And beyond that, I, there's just there's not a lot that I'm really attracted to right now. But I also don't want to make the mistake of hypocritically falling in love with cash. The thing that I just said. It's not, it's going to give you half the returns of equities over 20 or 30 years. So I'm trying to be mindful of that. So, yeah, I have the same conundrum with Airbnb. I really want to buy more. I like it a lot. I was, I had the same reaction to them talking about adjacent opportunities because that could be great. That could be brilliant, but it could also be they do something really dumb. And they, like you said, they're, they finally have gotten to a point where, everything's heading in the right direction, like user numbers, profitability, revenue, everything's great. And I, I'm like, okay, just keep doing that for a while, please. Let's just, yeah. so we'll have to see how that plays out. Jeff, we did it. As always, we did it. Okay, friends. And as always, Jeff and I love to give our answers to these hard questions about investing, but it is up to you to figure out your answers to life's hard investing questions. You can do it. I believe in you. Okay, Jeff, we'll see you next time, buddy. See you next time.